At the end of the hour, last hour, we were making an appeal to you from Deuteronomy chapter 30, a very, very crucial passage concerning how God will deal with Israel in this matter of the, the land that he has promised to them. Uh, I am not taking the time in class to go back to each of the statements of the dimensions of the land that uh, God promised to Abraham as an everlasting possession. It, it takes hours to do that, and it's very worthwhile to go back and to look at the precise dimensions. Don't take those generally. Uh, in Genesis chapter 15, the lands that we read about yesterday, that's reiterated in numerous passages throughout the Pentateuch and on beyond that into the prophets. And uh, that is meant to be taken very seriously. God gave... Israel, a specific promise with regard to a specific land as an everlasting possession. And God gave to Abraham a promise with respect to a seed, a line, a, a house, if you please, uh, descendants, perpetually. He did not promise that Israel would always have a king on the throne. But there would always be a king who would be qualified to be by the line of descent. He did not always promise them that they would be in the land. But uh, he never took away the fact that the land uh, could be theirs for possession at any time if they observe certain statutes that he had set before them. It makes those very clear. And we drew your attention to Deuteronomy 28 and 29. The blessings that would be theirs if they obeyed, the curses that would be theirs if they disobeyed. And that would be graphically shown by their presence or absence on the land. And God had ways of driving them off of the land. Locusts were very useful. Uh, amazing how people will preach that passage today and locusts becomes everything else. It becomes the latest disease. Uh, herpes or AIDS or whatever else. Uh, oh, it was locusts that God used to drive them off the land. Uh, be careful of your spiritualization. God never promised them perpetual occupancy of the land, nor did he promise them perpetual king on the throne. But he promised them that there would be a king always and uh, that there would be the possibility of being on the land if they would follow his statutes. Now, in reading Deuteronomy chapter 30 last time, I suggested to you that what we experience today in the uh, new state of Israel is not, in my mind, 
a fulfillment of the prophecy of Deuteronomy 30. Um, back here a few years ago, when the uh, peace meetings took place between Sadat, who is now historical, and uh, Menachem Begin, uh, we had t-shirts. I remember in our trip to Israel that time, we had Menachem Begin and Anwar Sadat t-shirts, picture of each of them. <clears throat> Got one for each of my kids. Uh, before that, we had a 1973 war that was uh, very significant. Before that, a 1967 war. Before that, a 1948 war. Uh, before that, in 1917, the Balfour Decl Declaration. None of those things are without significance. But I remember at the time of the Anwar Sadat Menachem Begin peace meeting, uh, there was a rash of calls. On one morning, I had a call from Los Angeles, from Philadelphia, and from Seattle. Uh, one right after the other. What do you think this means prophetically? And I said, it doesn't mean anything prophetically. Uh, and then I had a little phrase that I use often. We'll get to this later when we deal with the signs of the times. But I said, there are no signs of the times because we're not in the time of the signs. And then the response came back on the telephone. What was that? Uh, would you repeat that again? I said, there are no signs of the times because we're not in the time of the signs. Man, it would be great if people would understand that before they run wild in making statements about the fulfillment of biblical prophecy. Biblical prophecy is not to be tampered with. It's a very specific testimony of the veracity of God. And uh, I need to handle it carefully. Uh, as far as I can understand the scripture, uh, Israel will return in belief. And it seems to me that if you have passages that are not altogether clear, then you certainly ought to interpret them in the light of the passages that are very clear. And Deuteronomy 30 says very carefully, now, all the, now it shall come to pass when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God drives you, and you return to the Lord your God and obey his voice according to all that I command you, you and your children with all your heart and all your soul, that the Lord your God will bring you back from captivity. Who will he bring back? a people that have returned to the Lord their God in the nations where he has driven them and have compassion on you and gather you again from all the nations where the Lord your God has scattered you. Now, I recognize that people will then say, what about Ezekiel 37 in the vision of the Valley of Dry Bones? Uh, does this not speak of a nation being brought back in unbelief. Uh, I'll not take the time to move through each of these passages verse by verse. We wouldn't make it through the class again, which would be normal. But uh, in Ezekiel 20, read it carefully. In Ezekiel 37, and see if it is really saying that they will return in unbelief. Uh, in Ezekiel 20, he clearly deals with Israel in the wilderness. 
what is the wilderness? Is that the wilderness of Judea? Or uh, is that where they have been driven throughout the world? Uh, God deals with Israel in unbelief and brings them to a place of belief. One of the major requirements of Israel being on the land is obedience. So he says, you disobey me, I'm going to take you off the land. You obey me, I'm going to bring you back on the land. You disobey me, I'll take you back off the land. You obey me, I'll bring you back on the land. Being in the land or out of the land was the visible demonstration of Israel's response to God and God's response to them. But God will most certainly fulfill his promise. He will bring them back on the land. Now, someone has asked me, do you think that Israel could be dispossessed from the land today? I mean, they could be taken off of there. Uh, yes, I think they could. Uh, be careful about saying that this is the final return, for if it is and they get dispossessed, then you're really in trouble biblically. And then what you will do is come up with another kind of theology. That happens regularly. Uh, people will come up with an idea that they have built out of their date setting, such as recently a number of people who set dates for the return of the Lord who were pre-tribulationalists, and then when it didn't happen, they became post-tribulationalists. Uh, we'll see that in the history of millennialism a little bit today. Uh, be careful of pushing yourself into a corner that you can't extricate yourself from. Don't go beyond what God has said. Don't push the hand of God. God will fulfill his scripture. He will do that. He's really able to do that. And we don't need to push his hand. Now, in order for you to, to have a, a little bit of a balanced attitude on that, You've got a few handouts today. These are all written to be read and uh, required to be read, and you will be tested on them. Uh, this first article called Israel Today, What Place in Prophecy? is written by two people, the first part by Dr. Mark Hanna, professor from Talbot Seminary, and the second part by Dr. Jerry Falwell. And I want you to read what both of them are saying. They're taking different viewpoints. And I'd like you to understand from those articles what indeed is anti-Semitism and what is anti-Zionism. Is there a difference between the two? And uh, what should be our attitude toward the Jew and what should be our attitude toward the Arab? Uh, be careful of having such a position with regard to Israel that you demean Arabs. God loves all men, not just Israel. But he is doing something special for Israel, so be careful in your loving all men that you don't discount something very special that God says he will do for Israel, that he didn't say he would do for anybody else. So we need to see that. Uh, this article, I think, will help to put that in perspective. There's another article the Battle of the Advertisements, done by the editor of Christianity Today uh, back in 1978 as well. And that will help to put things in perspective uh, so that you will understand where, where I come from, 
uh, in this viewpoint. Uh, there was an article done by a, a Jewish professor of history at Kent State University. Most of you have heard of Kent State. Uh, David Rausch, entitled True Friends, Evangelicals United for Zion. I was one of the original board members of Evangelicals United for Zion. That started with a, um, uh, a document that a group of us signed who were participants in a bicentennial prophetic congress in Philadelphia, July the 3rd, 1976. Uh, we signed that uh, as uh, a, a, uh, a confession of our support for the people of Israel to exist. Uh, there are those who would like to wipe them out of existence. We carefully stated it so that we were not saying Israel could do anything they felt like doing, just or unjust, to get the land. Uh, it's one thing to say a people has a right to exist. It's another thing to say they have a right to a homeland. It's another thing to say they have the, they have the right to do anything they want to get to get that homeland. Uh, it, it's not all black and white all the time. And uh, Sim Kadinitz, who was the, the uh, uh, prime minister, the ambassador, I should say, rather, of Israel at that time, was so moved by our uh, uh, statement of Israel, uh, of support for Israel, uh, that they took our, uh, our charter and they put it in a showcase uh, across the street from the uh, parliament of uh, Israel. It is still to be viewed there. I have been uh, personally invited to have audience with uh, uh, Menachem Begin. I, uh, I have uh, a lot of warmth for them. They... They invited myself and a number, number of other evangelical leaders in America to come to a banquet in Washington, D.C., which we did. And uh, Sim Kadinitz uh, uh, shared his appreciation of our support at that point. And, uh, and uh, Dr. Criswell was sitting on one side of him and Dr. Linzel and myself on the other side. And I said, uh, uh, you know, we, we love you because uh, God loves you. And uh, we, we want to show the love of God to you. And uh, I said, by the same token, we would hope that uh, you would show the love of God to people in your land that do not espouse your particular religious viewpoint. And, uh, oh, he said, that, that we do. Our, our Constitution guarantees that. I said, I, I know your Constitution guarantees it. The only problem is you don't practice it. Well, what do you mean by that, he said. I said, you persecute Christians in Israel. Oh, no. I said, oh, yes. <laughs> he said, can you name one? I said, I just happened to be able to name one. Uh, he was a good friend of mine. His name was Jim Hutchins in seminary days. He changed that when he became uh, a Jew uh, to the name Yaakov Hutchins. And his wife, Patty Hutchins, uh, became Yael Hutchins. And they uh, appealed to a rabbi in their city to uh, become a Jew and to return to Israel under the law of return. 
And normally the rabbi would ask them to renounce their previous faith, but for some quirk of coincidence, he did not ask them to renounce their previous faith, which they would not have done. Uh, and uh, they became, quote, Jews and returned to Israel under the law of return. And we're having a phenomenal ministry in Israel with Jews. They were having prayer meetings in their house uh, on Fridays uh, for four hours at length, 50 and 60 Jews gathering with them. Their son got involved in a Jewish uh, uh, Western movie because he could speak uh, Jewish and speak English also. And uh, uh, they had a tremendous involvement until finally it was found what they were doing, and they were doing it very openly. Uh, but uh, the Supreme Court of Israel threw them out of Israel. And they said, in essence, you can, uh, you can be a Buddhist and be a Jew. You can uh, bow down and worship idols and be a Jew, but you cannot believe in Jesus as Messiah and be a Jew. And uh, consequently, they fined him uh, several thousand dollars, which his Jewish friends paid, and uh, kicked him out of Israel. And since that time, I have had repeated contacts with the rabbi who is in charge of uh, Israel-American relationships, uh, wanting to make contact with uh, Jim Hutchins, which they did. And I said, let's just be consistent. Let's be consistent. Uh, if your land guarantees freedom of religion, then don't persecute Christians. And don't develop anti-missionary bills. out of the Knesset. You see, let's be careful of what we espouse. Uh, I believe Genesis 12. And I believe there have been some beautiful examples in history, uh, going back to Esther and Mordecai, where God has supernaturally protected that nation. And one of the greatest uh, demonstrations of the veracity of the Word of God is one simple little three-letter word, Jew. He's still there. You can't destroy him. The Hittites and Girgashites and Jebusites and all the otherites are gone, but the Israelites are still there. And they will there be there because you won't destroy the Israelites. You won't destroy them. Uh, so we love the Jew. We love the Arab. We recognize what God has said he will do for Israel in the land. And God will do it. And let us be sure that we're not in a place of persecuting the Jew. Let us also be sure that we're not condoning unrighteousness in achieving God's ends. God's ends can be achieved without having to condone unrighteousness. At the end of the hour, you asked me, is uh, there any significance then to what is happening today? Does that help to somewhat fill in the pieces? certainly does, but uh, it's just that we cannot have any certainty about the present uh, occupation of Israel and the That's land. Right. Keep our eyes open. Watch. So should we still have prophecy conferences? <laughs> yes. Oh, thank you for that question. Should we have prophecy conferences? You bet. And specialize where we specialized the first couple of days in this class. Talk about the practical value of prophecy. Be aware of what God says is going to happen. Be careful of dogmatizing where we don't have the right to dogmatize. In other words, all of the dogmatic identifications of the king of the north down through history are an embarrassment. Uh, 
for one could equally read articles that say it was Stalin who was the king of the north, or Mussolini who was the king of the north. At one time he was from Germany, at another time he is from Russia. Whatever the time seemed to demand. Be careful. North, yes, we know that. What country north? Maybe we know that. What person? Less maybe. Uh, but there's some things we really know for sure. And let's capitalize on what we know for sure. And then remember that prophecy was basically given to change the way I live today, not to decorate my mind with certainties about things that God has not given certainty, but to change my life today. And when God says to Israel, I'm going to bring you back to the land, you can be sure he's going to do that. And I think it's uncanny to watch some of the things that are happening. I think the Entebbe occurrence was phenomenal. Uh, to fly those planes as close as they flew them to the ground uh, is an amazing thing. I wonder if any other Air Force could do that. It's an amazing thing to me that the United States can sell planes to Israel in Israel can use the planes we sell them and teach them how to use and refuel them in half the time that we do it. Uh, it, is, uh, it is interesting to me to see how they can send these little pilotless planes in to smoke out a place and they get shot out and then they come along and shoot the place that was shooting them out without losing any pilots. I'm amazed at what they did in Iran, though I'm not sure that I agree, or in Iraq, but I'm not sure that I agree with the way that was done. I'm not sure that war is always uh, all that equitable or nice. But I want to be careful. I want to be careful to love Muslims. And I want to be careful that I don't make it a degrading thing or a demeaning thing for a man to be a missionary to the Muslim world, uh, as well as to the Jewish world. Uh, red and yellow, black and white, all are precious in his sight. So I love them all. And if the New Testament revelation gives us anything, it gives us a strong idea of no partiality. Was that not the lesson Peter got? I am just now beginning to get a, a grasp of the fact Peter says that God is no respecter of persons. Ah, oh, yes, that's true. It took a long time for Peter to get that through. And we want to be sure today that we honor the promises of God. Watch the hand of God. Don't stand in the way of the hand of God and love all the people of the earth and seek to bring them all to Jesus Christ. Seek to focus their attention on Christ. And don't make pronouncements that go beyond Scripture that are going to alienate one group of people because of my unwise uh, expansion of a legitimate statement that God makes in his word. Uh, it would be fun to go through all of the uh, newspaper articles. I have files full of them. If you want to stop someday, we'll just uh, have a nice time going through all of them. Uh, 1967, the entry. Uh, 1967, interpretation. Uh, Here's one on the whole page from the Los Angeles Times on the Mideast uh, conflict. 
very, very interesting to watch it all. I most recently have seen the, uh, the uh, idea in Israel of making a canal from the Mediterranean to the, uh, to the Dead Sea. I think that's extremely interesting because I can see, ah, something that God said about a waterway there may now be coming into reality. It's a possibility. Watch it all. Watch it all. Only make dogmatic pronouncements to the extent that Scripture makes the dogmatic pronouncement that I can understand. And by all means, uh, don't stand in the way of the Jew. Now, let me ask you, uh, well, I was looking for something else here, and I seem to have misplaced it. Here it is. Here's a series of questions that you might want to just jot down and answer them biblically. First question, who owns the land? Who owns the land? The Arabs? The Jews? Who owns the land, biblically? Anybody want to venture a verse? Try on Exodus 19.5 or Psalm 24.1. Anybody remember either one of those verses and what it says? All right. Who owns the land? God. That's number one observation. Who owns it? God. Secondly, who has been given stewardship of the land? Who has been given stewardship of the land? And for one scripture at least, Genesis 15, 18 to 21. Who there is said to have been given stewardship of the land? You remember? Israel, right? The descendants of Abraham. Third, what determines continuous occupancy of the land that they've been given stewardship of, which belongs to God? What determines continuous occupancy? Obedience. Scripture, Deuteronomy 28 to 30. You might want to compare Second Chronicles 36, 16, and 17. A, a strong statement where God uses human agency... <clears throat> to drive Israel out of the land. Second Chronicles 36. Let me just read it. 16 and 17. I'm going to read from 15 on. And the Lord God of their fathers sent warnings to them by his messengers, rising up early and sending them, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked the messengers of God despised his words and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people, till there was no remedy. Therefore, he, God, brought against them the king of the Chaldeans. Who brought the king of the Chaldeans? God did. Who killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion on young man or virgin, on the aged or the weak. He gave them all into his hand. God did. 
God doesn't take sin lightly. D, or four, when will God bring them back to the land? Deuteronomy 30, when they return to the Lord their God in the nations where he has scattered them, then he will regather them. Question five, does Israel have a right to exist? Ah, what a story you have in Esther 4, 14. Go back and read that book again and find out what happened to the nations who sought to destroy the people of God. What a way God turned the tables against Haman. Be careful of getting in Haman's position. More recently, we've had another man who was like Haman. His name was Nasser. He's now past history to most of you. I don't know if he was even ruling when some of you were born or not. Uh, but uh, Nasser was the ruler of Egypt. And uh, Nasser was out to destroy the Jew. And there were statements that he made that were strangely similar to what we have stated in uh, Psalm 83. Let me read this passage to you. Psalm 83, the first several verses. Do not keep silent, O God. Do not hold your peace. And do not be still, O God. For behold, your enemies make a tumult. And those who hate you have lifted up their head. They have taken crafty counsel against your people and consulted together against your sheltered ones. They have come, and now notice the statement. They have said, come and let us cut them off from being a nation. That is almost precisely the wording of Nasser when he was fighting Israel. There is no Nasser anymore. But there's still Israel. And it's an interesting thing that his successors in Egypt have had a far more conciliatory attitude toward Israel than Nasser had. But read on. He said, come and let us cut them off from being a nation, that the name of Israel be, be, be remembered no more. For they have consulted together with one consent. They form a confederacy against you. The tents of Edom, notice how he lists them now. The tents of Edom and the Ishmaelites, Moab and the Hagarites, Gebel, Ammon, and Amalek, Philistia with the inhabitants of Tyre, Assyria also has joined with them. They have helped the children of Lot. You go through and check that, and you'll find it's the ring right around Israel. And the one who sets out to destroy Israel as God's people will be destroyed. Why? Because Israel is so good? Because Israel is so loving? No, not at all. Because God is faithful. And God said it, and God will do it. That's the point. Now, God was faithful to whip them, and God's faithful to bless them. Read one more verse. Turn over to Romans chapter 11. We have a promise from the Lord here. In Romans chapter 11, it begins by saying, I say then, has God cast away his people? Certainly not, for I am also an Israelite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. 
And then he goes on to talk about that. And I'll not read all of the intervening, but look down at verse 11. I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. But through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now, if their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? For I speak to you Gentiles. Now catch this. Inasmuch as I'm an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my, off my ministry. If by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh and save some of them, for if their being cast away is the reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? It goes on to spell that out. Move on down. Verse 23. Verse 20, well, 21, excuse me. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Who's the you? in the passage. Who's the you? Gentiles. Any Gentiles here? Any Jews here? You all Gentiles? This is you. Have you ever heard a prophetic message on this? Why do we skip that one? If God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Therefore, consider the goodness and the severity of God. On those who fell, severity. But toward you, goodness, if you continue in his goodness, otherwise you also will be cut off. How about that prophecy? Otherwise you also will be cut off. Cut off from eternal life? No, it doesn't have anything to do with eternal life. It is talking about the position of blessing in the service of the Lord. And God does not allow me to operate in a position of blessing if I'm living in sin. And man, if America ever needed a message, they need that one today. Just within recent days, one of the leading lady writers in our country who has written many, many books that help many, many people has uh, been divorced from her husband. And now when the pastors have been on her back to hassle her a little bit, she's on their back. Don't get on me. She's justified in what she did. We got the Christian leadership in America having no sense of commitment at all to a contract they made. God doesn't look lightly on that. And if you people who committed yourself to a person at a marriage altar dare to start to think we're not compatible or your eyes dare to rove to another person may God do the same thing to you as he did to Israel for you are a reproach to the name of God that's whose name is being blemished today by people who do not know what tough love is they don't know what commitment really is. You see, prophecy is practical. I think I've said that before in the class. And I want to say it again and again. We can learn a lesson from Israel. We can keep learning a lesson from Israel today. They are a visual aid to us. God hates sin. 
And with regard to the divorce issue, the scripture says God hates divorce. Don't you be encouraging people to do that which God hates. Because in some soft, sentimental way, you come to the place where you say, well, we really aren't compatible. We made a mistake. Live with it. And learn to become compatible. Now, if you've made mistakes in the past, we all have. We can't undo that. But don't soften the future because of my mistakes in the past. Don't change the Word of God because you did wrong. Admit you did wrong. Renounce it. Repent of it. And do right. Get back on the track and do right. Why? Because you can. Why? Because the God who gave the command will give you all the resources you need to do what is right. See, there is a lesson for us to be learning right now from Israel. And what is my legitimate hermeneutical base for that? He says it right here. Beware. Lest God cut you off. Don't look at the Jew disdainfully and say, oh, they were stiff-necked, they were hard-hearted, they rebelled against God. Because every time I point a finger out like that, I've got three pointing back at myself. Examine your own heart, Rodmacher. That's the practical value of this lesson. And Paul drives it right home in chapter 11. Be careful, Gentiles. Be careful what you do with regard to the Jews. God hates sin. So from my standpoint, when I try to talk with a Jew or talk with a Gentile about the, the matter of Zionism, about the matter of the, the land, I want to run through these questions. Who owns it? Who's been given stewardship of it? What determines continuous occupancy? When will God bring them back to the land? Does Israel have a right to exist? You better believe it, and they will exist, because God's going to see to it. That's what, I, that's what Matthew 24 is talking about. Brian? I think I'm a little confused on point four. Will God bring the people back to the land prior, uh, or uh, based on the fact that they've obeyed before they're in the land, or... What do you think Deuteronomy 30 says? I'm not going to answer the question. I think the passage is clear. And if it isn't clear to you, then go back and read it again and again until you come to a conviction on it. Tim? If they haven't did what you professed, why are they there then? That's why I said I will not be dogmatic. I'm interested. I see all kinds of things happening. As I suggested to you earlier, I'm just as interested in what is happening in the world uh, market of economy. I'm interested in the microfiche card that they want to uh, photograph on my forehead, ultimately. That says something to me, too. But I don't want to start setting dates on that basis. I want to watch. I want to keep my eyes open. But don't get dogmatic at that point. Yes. They aren't really in the land today because uh, as many Jews are in New York City and Southern California as there are in Israel. Exactly. Plus, Paul also says in the same passage that not everyone who is a descendant of Abraham is a Jew, but those who are of the promise, isn't that what it says? That's right. And Romans 11 says there will be a day when who shall be saved? When a nation shall be saved in a day. So I take it there will be a generation of this people 
that will come to Jesus Christ. What generation will that be, according to Matthew 24? You haven't gotten there yet, but do you know the answer? It'll be the generation that sees what is portrayed in Matthew 24, beginning with verse 15. See, and, and we've got people today saying that uh, from 1948 you, de you date that genera generation, or from 1917 you date that generation, or from 1963 you date that generation. Well, that's not what Matthew 24 says. That generation that sees the things he's talking about in Matthew 24 will see the coming of Jesus Christ. For you can chart it out on a, on a, on a uh, calendar. Uh, but we haven't gotten that far yet. We'll come to the 70 weeks in another day or two. Be careful. Now, uh, it, it, would be, uh, it would be interesting and a lot of fun to do a lot of talking in that area. I wish we could. But uh, I think I've given you at least a basis for a, a, uh, an understanding. And if, you, uh, if, you, if some of you still have the question that Brian vocalized for us, then go back and look at Deuteronomy 30 again and come to your own conviction from that. And look at Ezekiel 37. Look at Ezekiel 20. Uh, build your conviction not on what I say, but on what you see in the Scripture. Now, I'm going to get off course one hour, it looks like. Uh, basically, in the next hour, I want to develop the historical rise of the various millennial interpretations. I'm going to introduce you to some books today and uh, three major views. On page uh, 256, 257 of your notes, you have uh, the various systems of millennialism. In other words, what we're saying here is how have various schools of thought dealt with these covenants? Uh, how have they responded to the promise God gave to Abram and its potential fulfillment? And you have listed three basic systems with subsystems. Every one of them has their subsystems. You have premillennialism listed, amillennialism listed, and postmillennialism. Now get down a very succinct definition of each of those so you don't find yourself stumbling when someone asks you, uh, you know, what does a premillennialist believe? And some people will respond by getting all involved in the rapture issue. Uh, stay with the millennial issue when you're talking about the millennium. A pre-millennialist simply believes that Jesus Christ will return prior to the millennium to set up his kingdom on this earth. And ah, millennialist means exactly what this word says, no millennium, i.e., no literal millennium, no thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth with his church 
through the nation of Israel. No earthly millennium. Now, in fact, our millennialists do believe in a millennium, and different ones have believed in different aspects of that millennium, which we will get into next hour. Uh, but they don't believe in a literal, earthly millennium, reign of Christ on the earth. Thirdly, post-millennialists believe that Christ will come after the millennium. Other forces will bring about a golden age. They will bring about a, uh, a millennial existence on the earth at the end if they happen to be a conservative post-millennialist, to the earth to consummate it. Now, next hour, I want to develop the historical development of those views. Let me take a minute to just uh, mention a couple works and to make an assignment. On You have listed... Pentecost, things to come, 370 to 394. I'm not going to require that you have that done by next hour. I'd like you to have that done by next hour. But I recognize you may not all have an access to uh, Pentecost's book, Things to Come. Uh, this is a veritable encyclopedia. And it occurs to me that there is nothing in your assigned reading that gives you the history of the development of these viewpoints. And uh, I decided to take the shorter one I had thought about giving you the 125 pages of the historical developers, uh, The Millennial Kingdom. He is the, the father of all of this writing here. Uh, but I think Pentecost is shorter, more succinct, and it will enable you to get through it faster. Pentecost on the history of the development of these things. Now, if I were really lacking grace, I'd give you these three volumes that I had to read for my course on millennialism by G.N.H. Peters. There's nothing in history like these three volumes. This man, a Lutheran pastor who uh, really uh, ruined his health in, uh, in pastoring. He was pastoring German churches and English churches in Pennsylvania, and he was having to translate some of his messages. And uh, this man was so poor that he wrote this book, these books, on butcher paper and paper bags and anything he could get a hold of, and there are more than 4,000 original sources, source works, quoted in this book, many of which even Wilbur Smith could not find. And Wilbur Smith had the largest library of any theologian going around today. And uh, Wilbur Smith writes the introduction to this volume, a mammoth thing, fantastic thing. And uh, if you want to have some good reading sometime in spare time, then uh, G.N.H. Peters, his three volumes, because he gives you in the first three centuries original quotes that you will not get anyplace else from the 4,000 sources that he gives. So we'll move into that next hour. Read Pentecost. Read the articles I handed out to you. We'll discuss them in the next hour. The Theocratic Kingdom. Thank you. These three volumes are the Theocratic Kingdom of our Lord Jesus the Christ by G. N. H. Peters published by Craigle. Three volumes. Most exhaustive thing in existence on this subject. Be sure you read the handouts. They are subject to quizzing. 